At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. It is not uncommon, as we all know, for famous athletes to visit children in hospitals. Sometimes, as we also all know, these visits are well-publicized. But frequently, these visits are done quietly. They're done quietly. Yet, whether done quietly or loudly, what I know to be true, both as a hospital chaplain, as a human being, as a speaker, as a man, and certainly as a little boy who got a lot of those visits, it has a profound effect on providing joy, hope, and positivity, not only to the patient themselves, but to their family, to their loved ones, to the staff, to everybody involved in their care. In addition to Hall of Fame radio announcer Jack Buck, today's guest was also one of the individuals who repeatedly showed up in my hospital over five months. Way back, I'm going to date myself a little bit now, kids. Way back in 1987, there was a nine-year-old boy named John O'Leary who was a St. Louis Blues fan. And there was also a St. Louis Blues player. First time he came by to visit me, my mother came into the room. She was not a Blues fan at the time. And she said, John, there's a man outside who says he plays for the Blues. His name is Gino Cavatelli. And I remember looking back and saying, Mom, do you mean Gino Cavallini? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gino Cavallini. My mom liked pasta, apparently. Cavallini was his name. Well, that day he came in. He showed up one time, he learned about the need, and something remarkable, as dire as the situation, as difficult as what it was like for Gino to visit this little boy, he came back. And then he came back again and again, and he brought friends, and he brought pizza, and he brought a seven-foot blue bunny named Louie, and he brought hope and joy and positivity into the life of a little boy and his family who were struggling mightily today. My friends, what I'm going to do is encourage you to get your pads on. Make sure your helmet is on, your, your hockey gloves are on, your skates are tied up tight. Because we'll be introducing you to that man who made those visits. Talk about the reason why he made those visits. We'll talk about growing up in Canada. We'll talk about growing up the son of an immigrant father from Italy. We'll talk about growing up humble and hungry and working hard and ultimately make your career and your life about something bigger than yourself. We're going to be talking today about the story and the life and the impact of a guy who I love. His name is Gino Cavallini, and after you hear him, you're going to love him too. I'm also going to give you a little spoiler alert. 
this burly, big, tough, fighting, hockey-playing Canadian is going to be part of a competition this coming weekend where he will shave his luscious locks. That's right. The hockey player is shaving his head bald because he's trying to raise awareness and funds on behalf of Chicago Mission's Pink in the Rink fundraiser. It's taking place this Saturday. At the very end of this program, I'll be sharing with everybody what I'll be donating, but I'm going to challenge you on the front side to not only buckle up, but open up your hearts. Remain humble and hungry and generous as I bring on the example of those characteristics. He's my friend, and now yours. His name is Gino Cavallini. Gino, number 17 for the St. Louis Blues. Welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Johnny, how are you? Matt, uh, I'm a lot better now that you are uh, skating around the rink with me. I'm, I'm thrilled to interview a friend. I've, I've had more than 500 guests on here, and I had my mother, so that's a friend. And we've had some other buddies, but I, you're my friend. I look up to you. I love you. You've had my back. I have yours. And it is an honor, my friend, to share your story today with our listeners. That's great. Thanks, Johnny. I may be your friend, but you are my hero from the day I first met you, bud. Don't underestimate it. Well, we'll come back to that day in a couple of days subsequently. But before we talk about that day or our friendship or our love and mutual respect of one another, I, I got to back the train up a little bit farther. We're going to go to November 24th and we're going to type in the year 1962. We're going to leave the United States, head way up north to Toronto. Talk about just growing up in Toronto, Gino. My mom is Canadian. My dad was Italian right off the boat. Probably my first language was Italian. Even with a, a Canadian mom, she spoke Italian as well, and she learned. And my dad had immigrated in 1960. I was born in 62. We moved into a house into the suburbs like five years, uh, 65, when my mom was pregnant with Paul. And uh, my mom still lives in the same house to this day. And we grew up in a, you know, an immigrant neighborhood. Families had come over from Europe or, you know, wherever, whether Italian or Spain or Portugal or France and some Eastern Europe at the time. And when they, when they made enough money to make ends meet, they moved, they moved out of house and moved out. And that's, that's where my mom has been ever since. There's some stereotypes on, on Italian families, in particular, those that are either still in Italy or right off the boat and raising kids Italian in Canada. Food, was food a big part of your childhood? <laughs> food, yeah. Except for my poor dad. He could barely work hard enough to feed us. And we were not small, small <laughs> kids. We were big kids. I mean, Paul was, geez, he was probably 14. He was 6'2", 250 when he was 14. <laughs> I mean, when we got into our mid-teens playing hockey, we definitely had an advantage being the bigger guys on the ice. The Cavalini boys. Yeah. You and I have in the past talked about your dad and just some of the things he taught you. But I'd like you to share a little bit more about the character of your dad and what you learned from your father growing up. You know, and looking back at it now, there was no quit in him. You know, he worked hard and, you know, he imparted that off. Uh, he imparted that. I remember getting cut from uh, higher level teams and I'd come back in a car and when I was younger, I'd be crying. And, you know, when I, when I started to get like 13 or 14, he'd start having conversations like, Hey, you know, you got to work harder. You think you're working, you're just scratching the service. And this is all in broken English, Italian too. And it's right. not like he was uh, proficient, you know, he could carry a conversation, but it, unless you were around that kind of uh, uh, like it, Italian English, it was hard to understand, but you know, work hard, earn it. 
between my mom and my dad. You know, simple life lessons. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Don't be afraid to go the extra mile to help someone that's in need. You know, mm. those little messages you don't really think about. The message was either work hard, do the work, and treat people the way you want to get treated. And, you know, in a time when, you know, there's a lot of divisiveness and the politics and everything, hey, it's nice. It's refreshing to see someone holding the door for another person. You know, just little, the little things go a long way. And mm. just don't forget, even with my kids and my dad, the message was don't forget for where you came from. Before you left where you came from, you were living it. And one of the things that you and your brother got into is you become these big, large Italian kids, hockey. Everybody in Canada is into hockey, but you weren't only into it. You were extraordinarily gifted at it. So talk about the draw into hockey. And at what point, you know, did you recognize that you had a gift here? The recollection was winners were a lot colder. We got into skating. My mom skated. So my mom taught both my brother and I how to skate uh, from because of her background. So we, we learned how to skate early. And I can remember even when my brother was born, my mom would bring me over to the public rink that was outdoors. Like, let's say the outdoor rink at Webster. Right. And <laughs> Paul would be in the stroller bundle up. Like the, the, the maintenance person there, the Zam driver would be like, you crazy, you're leaving your little kid out here. And my mom would be like, don't <laughs> worry, he's bundled up plenty warm. And we go outside, we'd skate for every day after kindergarten or great, you know, when we were younger. When I got into hockey, I can remember going to my first hockey tryout or whatever, and uh, I had a helmet, gloves, and skates, and a stick. I didn't have elbow pads, shin pads. So then, you know, there were other families that knew, you know, we had no clue. And, you know, the next day, someone would bring shin pads. The next day, someone would bring pants. And that's how we figured out. And at the time, there was no sporting goods stores. You went to a smaller hardware store across Canada was Canadian Tire. And that's where, that's where you would buy your equipment. You, know, you would go to the big hardware store, like a, let's say today it would be like a Home Depot uh, or Lowe's. And that's where the sporting goods section, and then you'd find your hockey equipment. I mean, that's, but that's all we did. We had a passion for it, whether, you know, once we got into it, you played in the winter, you played in the spring, you played street hockey. There was winters where we'd get sleet and rain and the, the streets would freeze right over and they never salted back then. And you put your skates on, you skated right in front of your house on the street on half an inch of ice. That's just what we did. You mentioned earlier being teary-eyed next to your dad driving home and he's speaking back to you with broken Italian English, reminding you you had more to give and challenging you to be tough. Not, not, not to cry, but to be tough, to really get into the corners of life. How, how valuable do you think that lesson is as you grew as a player and as a guy to, to fail your way forward? And, and I'll set it up separately by saying this. It seems to me a lot of kids who are super gifted when they're younger seem to flame out as they get older. We were never handed anything. We earned it. In that process, you appreciate it. It was a 14-year-old when I finally played at the, you know, a AAA or a Tier 1 or the highest level in the city at the time. I didn't want to lose that spot because I knew how long and how hard it had taken to get there. You know, fast forward to today, like we have players that are moving on to juniors or even college. And I'll catch up with my former players and uh, especially in the early fall where they're having some success. And I call them to congratulate them on, you know, what you've been able to accomplish, but remind them that someone wants your seat in the room. And, and it's, it's fine. I mean, it's a team sport, but it's a competitive sport and you work so hard. Don't rest on your laurels now. Like keep doing what you've been doing. And you know what? Some of those, you know, for us, you know, I got to junior hockey. Then I got to college hockey. And even at college hockey, I was undrafted. And 
you know, I worked my way into an opportunity on a team that won a national championship that got some recognition. And all of a sudden I had an opportunity to play pro because of what I had done. And you look at, you know, those veterans that get traded every year in the NHL or, you know, any sports. I mean, I'm familiar with the NHL, so it's easy. And they bring these guys in at the trade deadline to make a playoff run because they need that. They need that, that voice in the locker room that, yeah, the coach could say the same messages, but it's a little more impactful when it's coming from one of your teammates that's already gone through it. And those are the messages we, we try to pass on now. It's like, don't get complacent. Like you worked hard to get here. Don't lose your spot now. Keep it. And it doesn't get easy, but the hard work is fun, you know, because you are amongst peers that have the same passion and, you know, your brothers, you know, you're the teams you're on, you're your brothers, you're going into battle every night with them. You mentioned this a moment ago, you won the national championship with Bowling Green State University. I think you scored the goal that ultimately clinched that victory for you. And you're not the kind of guy that likes to brag. So we'll skip right past that. You go undrafted. Eventually Calgary picks you up. And a year and a half later, they trade you to this little town in the middle of the United States called St. Louis. So a couple of questions around that. When you got picked up by Calgary, what's that feeling like? As a, a kid who didn't make it to AAA level until you're 14, which is kind of later for an oh. NHL type of player, to ultimately become an NHL player, what is it like to be picked up by the Calgary Flames? It was a thrill. I mean, you know, you always have that dream, but as you get older, you now I'm in college and I'm starting to think about, you know, really my future and how much longer is this going to last Hockey might not have been, you know, the priority at the time. It was getting a good degree, graduating, and then figuring out the next 45 years of your life, right? <laughs> and when it does happen, it was a thrill. You play for a year. It's a, it's a fine year. And you find yourself the following year being traded to St. Louis. What did you know about the Blues at that time? <sighs> Nothing. I knew that one of those brothers, there's like six of them in NHL, and one of them is the captain there, Ryan Sutter. Honestly, I couldn't say I knew one player on the team except for the guys that we had gone with. I was a young kid. I'm like, I, I had no idea what to expect. The expectation was zero for me. I had no idea. Just like, I, for me, it was, okay, I got to earn my spot here. I don't know who this coach is. Obviously the GM must know me because I was in this deal. Was I the throw in in the deal? Cause yeah. it was three, it was three players, you know, and, Gino, when you're 23 and you're flying in from Calgary and you eventually make it into St. Louis and you walk into that the players only clubhouse, what's the emotion, man? Like these are these are men. These are guys who are all teammates. You're the new kid on the block. You're one of the youngest kids in the room and you don't know any of them by name. What, what's that emotion like? Like anything, you're earning your peers' respect, whether it's the opponent or which we didn't play a lot of the North Division teams or my own teammates. I played a certain way and there's no, there's no, in, there was no in between. I played one way and that's the way I always played. And, you know, you earn everyone's respect because of that. And, you know, you have to earn it. There was no one, no one was handing you anything, you know, to this day, like even the younger kids that I coach today, like you want to talk to your teammates, you want your teammates to like you do it on the ice, play hard, play the right way. And you'll earn that respect. And that's, that's how it was in St. Louis. It's, you mentioned you played a certain way, and it's funny you bring that up. With with most of my guests, they have a couple books they've written, and they've been on 50 different shows. And with you, I, I uh, have a friendship already, so the water was already warm. But I did do a little bit of research. I Googled and then YouTube Gino Cavallini Hockey. The first 10 videos of Gino Cavallini Hockey and YouTube are Gino Cavallini 
in fist fights on the ice. And the 11th video, Cavalini, is you check in somebody so hard into the boards that the penalty box opens up and the guy goes flying into it. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, man. It was, it's quite, quite the hit. You played hard nosed. You, you played rough. You played with grit. I think you played it fair and straight up, though. That style of hockey, uh, where, where'd you learn that? When did that become your game? From when I, from when I was like 14. Once I figured out what I needed to do to make that next team, I figured out early on, like, where, where do I think I'm going to have the most success and where am I going to be the most valuable in my team and just go with it. So let's talk about going with it for a, a moment. 1987, you're going to go with a couple things in some regards. It's the, a wonderful connection to an old friend and then ultimately into a new one. 1987, a fella three years younger than you, his name is Paul, gets traded into the St. Louis Blues organization. What, what was it like for you, an NHLer, from humble beginnings? To not only be living your dream, but in 1987, your brother gets traded to the Blues and you get to live that with him. Honestly, it's it's more special now thinking back at how fortunate we were and to give our parents the opportunity to, to watch both of us, whether it was at home on a satellite back in the 80s when the dish was, you thought it was a, a picture of NASA, you know, the, the satellite dishes were 20 feet in diameter in your backyard. <laughs> Uh, you just it just brings back the fondest memories and and actually I can remember the day he got traded he calls me around noon I just get home from practice he calls me at noon and says he quit they were going to send him to the miners they were going to send him to the Indianapolis which was as far into the you know you couldn't get any lower it was it bypassed the American League and he's like forget it. I just won't play I'm not going there slams the door on his way out and so he calls me I'm like, just sit tight. Let, let our agent do what he does. And then like 6.15 that same night calls me back. He's like, what are you doing later tonight? I'm like, I don't know why. Because I just got traded in St. Louis. I'm like, oh my God. It was, so, it was, it was pretty cool. And, you know, and you think now, now that I've had two sons that have played hockey, how, how neat that would have been for even my two sons to have played on the same team at some point in time. But yeah. They were too far apart in years. But my brother and I had to play on the same team at, at you know, I, I can't even think of how the emotions going through my parents when they the first time they saw us either at Maple Leaf Gardens or a game in St. Louis. And so what would a beautiful way to bring family together and, and your family's about to grow a little bit because now you become buddies with a new friend, a new a new brother, younger brother, only nine years old. And I'm curious as we shift gears from your brother, Paul, to your far younger brother, John O'Leary. First question is, how did you even hear about a little boy getting burned and struggling in a hospital bed? Mr. Shanahan owned the team at the time, and he was good friends with Jack Buck. They knew, they knew I'd go visit kids in the hospital. You know, and it's not, not that everyone wouldn't do it, but, you know, some, some people just some of the guys we played with just couldn't, didn't like the sight of blood, just wasn't in their psyche or know what to say. And I had done it. And Jack called me. He was like, you got to go see this kid. You know, he had a bad accident and kind of, you know, give me the details, not of it, how bad it actually was. And because then when I went in to see you, like, they're scrubbing me down for like 20 minutes. You were in a <laughs> unit that, you know, was, the air was getting purified. I mean, it was... And, and I can remember getting back and, you know, and, and again, no cell phone. So I called Jack the next morning and I'm like, geez, you could have given me a heads up. Like this kid is on his deathbed. You know, he goes, how was he? he goes, honestly, if he had an hour to live, you would have never known it. He was in good spirit. He was smiling. He was talking. 
you know, he wasn't crying. Like, I don't even know how, you know, what kind of medication you are on. But I told Jack, cause I spent more time like talking with the nurses while they're scrubbing me down. And they're like, yeah, the longer he can push this out kind of prolongs, you know, it kind of gives him that little more opportunity for his body to catch up. And Jack, I can remember seeing him the first time after we hugged each other and it's like, geez, he's going to make it. Like we were two grown men and, you know, he was a grown man. I was still a young guy trying to figure my way through life, but we, we had tears in our eyes because at that point, the doctors were like, yeah, he's going to, he's going to make it. I'm like, Oh God, thank God. You know, Gino, why was, come back? I, I I've had the honor of being invited in and sometimes uninvited, but go anyway to see kids. And it's, it's sweet to go once. Like that's really thoughtful to go back is so rare. It's extraordinary, man. Why'd you go back? Whether it's O'Leary or any other kid that you ever went back. You to know what? At that, at that point you were a teammate. <laughs> I already had thought through in my head, like I lived the perfect life. I love what I do. And I've got all this time. I'm going like, what, what would it take an hour out of my day to come over and, you know, sit with you for five minutes and just, you know, BS a little bit and laugh and joke. You, you obviously thought I was a better fighter than I actually was, but <laughs> you know, you know, we would. I learned that on YouTube today. I'm like, what, what was I thinking? About nonsense. And then once, <laughs> once you started therapy, then it was. If I had a chance, I was. You know, you just needed encouragement. Your, your mom and your family and your brothers and sisters. There were, they were already there. But for you know, and and not that you would ever take any of them for granted, but just to see a different face every day would. All you're looking for is a smile, right? All, all I was ever looking for is a smile, and however that would take, wherever that conversation would go, whether I was on the floor looking up at you or you know, when you finally got to sit and then, you know, they started grafting and you were all bandaged up. It was like, geez. And, you know, after, after the first couple of times, I think, you know, Paul would start coming in with me. I could get Tony, I could get Holly. I, you know, I, there's different players that I would bring in just because they would be curious. And I'm like, why don't you just come over? It's, it's like, if it was your own son, you know, he's one of us now, like, you know, he's not, he's not going anywhere. He's there. We got all this time on our hands. What else would you do with your day? Go back and watch soap operas in the afternoon? I don't know. You're saying it so humbly that it's almost, it's easy to miss how generous it is. So it, it was, it's not missed on me or by our listeners. You came back, you came back a third time and a fourth time and again and again, and you kept bringing friends. And in one of our visits, there were no, no other friends around, but there's just memories of life. You forget the vast majority of life, but there are memories that are just ingrained. And one of my memories ingrained is you coming in, scrubbed up, mask on, gloves on, you had a soda in your hands and you're kneeling down in front of me. And it's at a time, you know, when I'm on my belly, they did a surgery on my back. So I spend a couple of weeks on my belly looking down at the floor. Then I see your face down there <laughs> and you say, how you doing superstar? That, you know, I lied and said, awesome. <laughs> you knew I was you did, a lot, of, you did a lot of lying like that then well I, I, I still do a lot but I, I lied a lot back then and I'm not awesome and you made a commitment that night you said hey superstar in tonight's game pay attention because I'm, I'm I'm gonna get you a goal and this is kind of legendary now at this point but I know when your style of play said back to you don't get a goal get a fight instead <laughs> you, know, and, you know you laughed so you saved my life too <laughs> well and it's it's such a beautiful little story it's a true story and you left that night. We'll get rid of a little bit of the, of the emotion, but mom and dad and I were listening to the game on the radio. 
the Kelly would have been calling the game probably in the first period. This is true. You do get in a fight and mom and dad and I are stunned and impressed by your generosity. And in the third <laughs> period with the score tied two two, you scored what ended up being the game winner. I think we ended up winning four to two that night. And you talk earlier about this kid's just there and he's just looking for a little encouragement. And yeah, I was just there, but even at that point, the guarantee of life wasn't certain. Like I'm primarily an open wound where vigor and hope and faithfulness matters a lot. And to have my hero score a goal for me on national radio, dude, I'll 36 years later, I'll never forget that moment. Jeez. I won't either. I mean, you think about guys on the ice and we're all in tears because they all, everyone knew like they weren't there physically when I come and visit, they were, but they were there spiritually. They were, they were all with me. Everyone always asked, you know, how's he doing? How's he doing? And that, that was an opportunity for, okay, let's go enjoy this with him. You know, he's been watching Well, we, we had had, we had to have 10, 12 guys in the room that night. That was like the nurses saw us coming. I'm like, you know, they, the, the nurses were loving it. A bunch oh, of good looking God. hockey players showing up with beer, soda, and pizza is a rare sighting in a burn center. As, as excited as I was to see you and the pizza and the soda, you, you brought on two other very cool things. You brought a seven foot blue bunny into the room with a blues jersey. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. So that bunny had I, a I, I can't even remember where I got it, but the guys are laughing because I pulled up that night. I pulled up that night with it in my passenger seat. I had a sports car. I had, a, I had one of those uh, 280ZX. It was in my sports seat. Took up the whole front. <laughs> like, where are you going? I'm like, you know, they knew what was on the line. I got to get in a fight. I got a score goal. <laughs> and we're going to see Johnny out there. And, you know, we would make it all that much more interesting. I mean, like, the guys were true to it. They were teammates. Well, you, you were... a. a- beautiful, vital teammate to our family. All the teammates that you had signed the jersey. You also brought in the stick you scored with. I, I showed you this a few years yeah. back. Every teammate signed that stick. You gave it to me. And what's so cool when people do generous things for people struggling is it's not only the one you give it to, it's every family member that sees it. It's every nurse that comes in. It's every custodial staff member cleaning that room, cleaning around a blue bunny and a stick. Like, the ripple effect of your goodness went far beyond John O'Leary. You don't think about it like that. If you can make a difference, why wouldn't you? Right? So why wouldn't I have done what I did? Someone asked me one time, like, why you? I'm like, I don't know. Jack knew that I did this stuff. And why not? At that point, you know, it didn't have to be Jack. I mean, Jack wasn't the only one that would call up or call the front office. And we had some people in the front office. They knew I was accessible. And, you know, you just... You do. You don't think about it. In a, in a time when you had absolutely nothing to laugh at or laugh about, to get you to laugh, it probably probably would hurt for you to laugh at the time anyway. You know, you, you did a lot of smiling. I don't know how much laughing you would do, but, you know, what does it take to make that happen? A lot. I know you, you will never accept that, but it, it does take a lot. And you lived into it. And we celebrated with a pizza and I celebrated with pizza and soda. You celebrated with pizza, soda, and quietly in the corner beer. I saw you guys sneaking those into the room as well. Eventually you leave the room. Eventually O'Leary leaves a few months afterwards. And about six months later in that sports car, you come by and pick me up. Early in 1988, you were injured for a few weeks. You may remember that. While most of us would use that time licking our wounds, feeling sorry for ourselves, 
you realize, well, if I can't be on the ice with the boys, I'll take one of the other boys down so that he can be. And, you know, you pick me up in this fancy sports car. I was in, in, so impressed that this hockey player <laughs> from Canada was driving me downtown. And then something started beeping above your head. And I'm like, what is that, Gino? <laughs> you're like, yeah, dude, I had a fuzzbuster built into this thing. So like the fuzzbuster is sounding that the police are radar. And so you slow down and then we speed up again. We park the car, we walk in. What I remember most three things. One is we won the game. Secondly, you took me around to meet all the guys ahead of time. So we walked into the players only clubhouse and these guys are all in various stages of undress, but you introduced me one by one, shaking the hands of all these professional athletes. That was life-changing, man. Such a cool thing. But my favorite part of that night was you and I had dinner together, which was cool. Then Paul came up and had a bite to eat with us. You know, that was awesome. Then you and I went to our seats and almost every single fan we passed knew your name, shook your hand, and you met them like they were your, your equal. In, in today's hockey and in today's sports world, you and I would have been buried in a tunnel. No one would have had any interaction with you. And right. no one would really know you. But you were, you were approachable, man. And I, I, even as a young boy limping behind you, I remember seeing a role model in front of me. Thank you. Yeah, I mean... Do what you can. Like, like I said, it was, we were a big family and you became part of it. Probably in the second period, I remember saying, what's wrong? And you're like, what do you mean? What's wrong? And I'm like, I can barely see the ice. And you're like, yeah, that's just smoke. <laughs> Back then in the mid eighties, they allowed you, if you can imagine listeners to smoke in this indoor arena and in a hockey arena back then, a lot of folks did, and it became harder as the game progressed to even see the ice. Uh, yeah. We ended up watching a game winner. You ended up taking me home that night. We've been friends for the decades that have followed. You've done some remarkable things. You went on to have a couple decade long career. It ended up ultimately in Milwaukee. You had great success in Milwaukee. I know it's a minor league club, but man, you were, I think you're a hall of fame up in Milwaukee. Another thing happened in Milwaukee. You not only played your game, but you you were able to play it the way you had always wanted to, where you showed a little bit more ability to put the puck in the back of the net. What, what do you think changed? Um, I I mean, when I turned pro, you know, they you know because I was big, they pegged you as this big checking forward, and they had you know slighter and physically. Uh, not as big players as their skill guys. I wasn't a skill guy, you know, which is kind of, you're in a professional, professional sport at this point. If you don't have enough skill, you you would have play, played. But then when I got to Milwaukee, it was, um, you know, they wanted, they wanted leadership in a locker room and they wanted a guy that could put the puck in the net. And I, I, depending on the year and who I played with, I mean, I, I always had decent stats. Uh, even in the NHL as a checking forward. But, you know, prior to that in college and junior, I was always, uh, you know, relied on to put the puck in the net and Milwaukee, they just let me have at it. I had played with some great players and my second year there, Tony Herkus came and we had played together in St. Louis and a little bit in Quebec and he got there. We were teammates for the next two years. And, you know, we just, we ran the table. I mean, it was, it was awesome. It was a lot of fun and I scored. And then, after my third year there, I ended up getting hired to go to Europe and played five years in Europe as not as a checking forward, but as a goal scorer. And that's what I did until I was 39. 
Gino, you did it well, man. I mean, more than a point a game in Milwaukee, more than two points a game, which is in hockey terms, unbelievable. More than two points a, go- a game in your final year. I think you were playing in Switzerland yeah. at age 39 and dominated, like really, really, really played well. How hard was it for you as a professional athlete to eventually for the final time unlace those skates and hang them up? It was hard to stay in that kind of condition. And and now, like, fast forward to today where you see uh, Yarmo Yager uh, came back and played a couple of games that, like, he's in his 50s now, which is incredible. Uh, but knowing what I what kind of condition I was in when I was 39 and about to retire, uh, it got to a point where I enjoyed playing and I loved the game. I signed a three-year contract to go back. But the kids were the kids were getting comfortable back in Milwaukee. And, you know, my wife was just, you know, she just got tired of, you know, we were packing for basically August through the following March or end of April with two little kids and just got tired of it. And they wanted to, they didn't want to, they don't want to go back anymore. And I'm like, you know what? I didn't, I'm 39 now. I've, it's run its course. It's, it's, it's time. I'm not, I'm not going my boys were, they were too much fun to be around. We didn't have kids and start raising a family to be, to be gone for four or five months at a time. That's not, I want to be around my boys. And it was easy decision, really. I mean, if they weren't coming, I wasn't going. June 28th, 2001 is the day I retired. I can remember the day. I can remember my workout in the morning and I can remember coming home and calling the general manager in Europe and telling him I'm retiring. That's it. So you retire, you come home, you're living up in Milwaukee that time. You mentioned your wife done boxing everything up five months of the year. But you also mentioned the the joy of raising a couple of boys. Just talk for a moment about being a dad. What do you like most about being a dad? It's like watching my my granddaughter now. Like it's it's so special. It's I was blessed with staying involved in hockey. Being able to coach my own my own kids, traveling around with my with both my boys, whether it was in Europe or across the United States or Canada, playing hockey. I mean, we spent so much time together. It was it was great. Fast forward, where my older son played, he played hockey at Wisconsin, which was close to home. So I could, even though I wasn't coaching him anymore, I could still get in to watch games, and they could get home. And my younger son. Uh, went to Lake Forest College to play Division Three hockey there, and you know, being in—I mean, we would have ten of his teammates over every Sunday night. It was—it was that was really cool, you know, just to have the boys around. I mean, they were all—they were always around. It was—we loved it. I mean, it kept me young, and so you have the 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 joy of having a nice long career, then raising a couple of boys, but that the hockey itch is still part of your life, and eventually you get an opportunity at the Chicago Mission. For those who may not really know hockey and maybe they don't live in the Chicago marketplace, what what is the Chicago mission? How'd you get involved? I came back. I had a friend who ran the club back in 2010, 11, and they were, you know, I was looking at, I had moved back to St. Louis. I worked for this company and then I got kind of burnt out not being around my own kids. And so we moved back to St. Louis and worked in St. Louis renovating homes for three years. And then uh, it was right at the end of the the housing crash. And I just got, I got tired of that and an opportunity arose to come back to Chicago to run this club. And I jumped at the opportunity and uh, been at the club since 2011. Now we're, we're actually, we train out of, we train out of the Blackhawks training facility in the city, fifth third arena. And we're the highest tier you can play in the United States, tier one, triple A hockey. We do a pretty good job. I've got a good group of coaches that 
you know, we have the same philosophy and, you know, we're here, you know, initially when you get into it, you know, you want to train the next generation of great hockey players, but, you know, the essence of it is we're, we're in the business of developing and training good people. The focus when it was starting was, you know, we want to train the best players possible. Right. And now that, you know, once you get in it, like, obviously you're going to, you because of the club we have, we can attract the best players, but you know what? There's more to it. You know, we're, we're developing great people, great human beings, you know, teaching, you know, all the lessons, all the great life, life lessons that comes out of sport. This is it, you know, and that's, that's what the message now, you know, those messages that I gave my kids and were, that were imparted on me when I was a kid, it's the same thing we impart on these boys now. Be good people. You know, you run a score up, you know, you're beating a team by eight, eight goals. Be gracious. Don't, you know, be humble. There's nothing wrong with a little humility and it's not always taught. And we have an opportunity. We got a pretty captive audience while they're at the ring. Uh, you know, winning, winning is a byproduct of everything else we do. Mm. You know, we don't focus on, you know, shortening the bench in September. We focus on developing the entire team and you're going to win games. At the end of the day, you know, impart the right messages and you're going to win your share of hockey Today, I had about 113 questions to ask you. I've gone through about 11 so far. And one of the questions was going to be celebrating your record, celebrating your success, and then asking you why. Why why are you the best, not only in Chicago or the Midwest, maybe in all of North America? And what you answered without even being asked is, John, we focus on developing people. We, We focus on character. We focus on reminding them that the way they behave matters as much as the way they perform. And I think that's part of why you're as successful as you are. So that, that's phenomenal. And, and part of what they are modeling is what they see you model, which is generosity and action. So I want you to talk for a moment about Pink in the Rink. We have four girls teams. It's a breast cancer awareness fundraiser that the girls would always do in October. And the four girls teams, they run it. We got a couple of really great managers and you know some of the, the coaches get behind the girls, but we leave it to our, our oldest girls are, like seniors in high school. So they kind of manage all the younger girls. And there's, you know, there's 80 of them, right? We would do it in, you know, in October, early in the season. It really wasn't enough time to get behind it and raise enough money. And the girls used to raise, you know, five, six, ten thousand dollars $10,000. We started pushing it out into November and then December. And then we, we ended up moving out of necessity. We moved to an event to the end of January. And the girls started hitting like, 40 50 60 and like last last year we got close to seventy thousand dollars for these girls raised on their own and so one year at the rink five or six years ago the girl's like hey coach would you would you shave your hair if we raise money for it i'm like wow okay i guess i mean i'm yeah why not how much is going to raise i'm like so they raised the first year they might have raised like three or four hundred dollars right i'm like thinking to myself man we can blow this thing out of the water like we can get I could get a bunch of my buddies to get behind this and people that we know. And so it became an annual thing where I would shave my head and we went from a couple hundred to a thousand to a couple of thousand. And last year we broke 7,500 and it all, it all goes towards a good cause. And last year you can see pictures where to, to make it fun, I dyed my hair pink leading up to it so they could cut pink hair. I don't know what color it's going to be this year, but I definitely need a haircut. Like this is hair I would have when... I first met you in my twenties. Like, you know, it wasn't great in 1987. It's far worse than 23, man. So I'm, I'm grateful those girls will be shaving you. What's yeah. the date they're doing this? We are doing it January 28th. 
is the pink in the rink. People can donate. There's a, if you go to our Chicago Mission uh, website uh, on the front page, you can see all the different activities going on that day. They do a, they do a lighting ceremony. I mean, it's it's a pretty cool event. It's pretty hard when it's it's something that touches all of us on a, on a different mm. level. I personally, uh, it's, it's, Brother Gino, will be donating. We'll have a link on our show notes, and we'll be driving traffic through our social media channel to uh, that's awesome to support that's, you uh, that's really and cool. your teams and the cause that you are supporting with Pink in the Ring. So thank you for that, and Can you and again, me? thank you for humbly serving. You, you refuse to take credit for any of the success that you've had and the, any of the impact that you've been part of, but you're reminding these kids what success looks like in life. And it's not necessarily what the scoreboard says at the end of a game. That's a little bit of it, no. but it's the manner in which we show up and serve those around us, which as yep. we loop this conversation up and put a bow on it, your father was instrumental in your life and in your humility and in your work ethic and in your grit and in your faithfulness and in your life, certainly. You are 60. You yeah. lost your dad when he was 59. Yeah. So two questions as we wrap up. The, the, the first is when your father passed away, you're a young guy still. How, how did that impact your life back then? And the follow-up to it will be, how has now crossing that threshold, living even longer than he lived, changed the way that you're living now? When it happened, it was... I don't want to say it was all of a sudden he had, uh, he had pancreatic cancer. So he had, they, they'd given him some time to live, not a lot. So we spent a lot of time together that summer time that we'd never spent when we were kids. Cause he was always working. Like I'm thinking about everything he missed with my boys. I don't want to miss that with my grandkids. There isn't a day that doesn't go by where I don't think about him. And you know, something that he would have said, or, you know, my Paul and I will talk about sayings my dad used to have where, you know, people be like, what is he talking about? I'm like, yeah, we got it. One of my favorite Gino Cavalini stories, and then we're going to wrap up with the Live Inspired 7, is I had the opportunity of speaking at a little Catholic church about 45 minutes away or so from downtown St. Louis. And as I'm shaking hands with folks as they walk into the church, there are two older senior citizens wearing blues jerseys, which isn't shocking in St. Louis, but it was summertime. And they both had number 17 on which is very rare, uh, 35 <laughs> years after Gino Cavallini walked out of St. Louis. So I, we started making small talk, and it turns out that these two had heard the story of John and Gino and our connection. And Gino, you had a similar impact on their life. Their, their name's Barry and Marge, if I remember it right. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, just, yeah, Barry and Marge, yep. Super sweet, ordinary, humble couple who had an interaction with you, fell in love with this kid, cared deeply for you. Apparently you even as a young man cared for them and treated with them with respect. And it goes back to like your mom. Why would you change? That's who you were growing up. It's who you were in college. It's who ultimately they found in Calgary, then St. Louis and who you are now as a coach and as a leader of men and women. Why would you change? And so I just, I, I'm so grateful that you remain this unchanging, kind, generous guy when people are watching and when they're not. Right. It matters, Gino. So uh, on behalf of Barry and Marge, two big oh, fans down here in St. Yeah. Louis, we love you, man. Yeah, I run it. I, honestly, I'll, I'll, if when we get down to like later in the year, once our season's over, I'll get down to, we'll get down to St. Louis, the Blues games. I'll always drop my line, maybe because they're season ticket holders and they'll arrange the schedule to be there. And, you, you know, that, that goes back to, back to 86, 
Charlie and I went over and we met them like for dinner in 86. We got invited out to dinner, you know, for this couple. Like that was, it was, it was pretty cool. We kept in touch. We just, I just, we get Chris, I get Christmas cards in there and I've watched their family grow as well. They had, they had younger boys at the time that are now adults and have their own kids. It's, it's pretty cool. All right, man. Well, speaking of pretty cool, so are you. Let's wrap up. Question number one for the Live Inspired Seven. These are seven questions asked of all the great hockey players and leaders in life we've interviewed. The first question is, Gino Cavallini, what's the most inspirational or impactful book you've ever read? Uh, honestly, and it's going to bring tears in my eyes, Johnny, but your book, On Fire, your first book was, you, you have no idea, dude. You have no idea what that does. I can tell someone to read that book, even to this day, I've got some families that, you know, they'll watch a video and they'll, they'll see the connection that we had. And the next time I see them, like I read the book front to back, cover to cover. I couldn't put it down. It's unbelievable. What an inspiration. So you know what the answer is, Johnny. Mm. Well, I was actually was not expecting that. I will say this though, the, the cover of the book was originally a picture of O'Leary wearing a suit, looking at the reader, like, look at me. So I wrote up to our dear friends in New York and I said, Hey guys, read the book and then redesign the cover. Cause the book's not about me. And then when you see on fire now it's, it's miri like mere letters where the yep. reader can see themselves. And the whole idea is that all the heroes within the story, you recognize as a reader, you're called to do likewise. Like you mm -hmm. see yourself in this book and then be generous to those in need. And how cool to think that somewhere maybe around chapter four, people are introduced to a guy named Gino Cavallini, uh, <laughs> a good hockey player and a great man. So I'm, I'm glad folks who read On Fire get to read about you. Question number two, reader of On Fire is this, what was one positive characteristic that you possessed as a kid growing up in Toronto that you wish you modeled as brilliant, brilliantly and boldly today? I, I don't want to say not to take no for an answer, but um, keep working, keep working hard, keep working hard and earn. You know, I, like I tell my kids, I coach, you know, they, you want luck, you got to work for it. it. Just doesn't mm -hmm. drop out of the air. You have to earn it. Do you know if your home caught fire and your wife and children and grandchildren and any animals you may have are out safely and you have an opportunity of running back in into the house and grabbing one item that really matters to you, what would you grab? A picture that we hang in one of the rooms that my oldest son drew when he was, was like a Monet, it was like an image of the starry night yeah. that is so... If you take a glance at it, you think you were looking at the real image. It, it just reminds you of how, how you can create something when you shouldn't. My kids would be like, oh, you got to go grab your hockey jerseys. I'm like, you know, all that, all that can be replaced. If you could sit on a, how about this? Sit in a hockey rink with one person have, and have a long conversation with anybody living or deceased. Who do you want to watch that hockey game with? Who do you want to be next to watching a hockey game? Gordie Howe. <laughs> for, for our listeners, you know, my mom's a listener. She doesn't know who Gordie is. So for our listeners who may not really know hockey, who is Gordie Howe and why'd you choose him? He is probably the greatest hockey player to ever play uh, over the course of 
for three decades at least, late till he was 52. Put it this way, she'll know who Wayne Gretzky is, right? He was Wayne Gretzky's childhood hero as well. What's the best advice that Gordy or Wayne or your father or mother or anybody else ever gave you? So the best advice Gino Cavallini ever received is? Keep working. Don't cheat. Keep working. Give an honest effort. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? The sky's the limit. I, I might have been a different, I might have been a better player had I known what I was, what I would have been able to accomplish with the attributes I had. I might have been a better, I might, I might have accomplished more. But at the end of the day, like there's no regrets. But I would tell my my 20-year-old self, don't, don't, don't be discouraged. Keep working hard. You know, your 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 setbacks are are purposeful. Gino Cavallini, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? Amazing. Amazing. I, 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 I look back now and, you know, I still got a ways to go, but I've met so many wonderful, I, I mean, through hockey and the things that I've been able to, you know, it's, it's amazing. The places I've been, the people I've met, the people I've worked alongside of a nine-year-old, how could a nine-year-old have transformed the way I think about certain things? You know, it's, it's amazing. I've been, I've been amazing or I've been blessed. Gino Cavallini, you are amazing. Uh, your work ethic was second to none. Your humility and humor and joyfulness and just the grit that you brought into every locker room and ice rink and little boys burn center hospital room changed, changed their lives. And today you sharing your story changed ours. So I want to thank you for asking the question, why me showing up and delivering and being an amazing friend to me. Been great, Johnny. It's been great. My friends, you have just heard the story and uh, part of the story. There's a lot more to it of the great Gino Cavallini. <laughs> he is amazing. My name is John O'Leary. Today's your day. Be amazing and live inspired. Well, my friends, I was asked on a podcast where I was recently interviewed by someone else. John, who was most important in saving your life? And then I, I kind of stuttered out of the gate a little bit. So he gave me two options. He said, was it your mom? And the question she asked, do you want to die? No? Okay. Then take the hand of God, walk the journey with him, and fight like you never fought before. Or was it Jack Buck and that visit and that follow-up visit and the encouragement and the baseballs on the hall? Which one was it? And I said, well, man, I, I don't think it's as easy as answering either or. I said it's more of a yes and. And one of the individuals that I shared was the name. Gino Cavallini. I think after you heard his story and his heart and his drive to love young people well, you know not only why he influenced my life to such a degree back in 1987 and continues to today, but why he found a career today up in Chicago, serving the hockey clubs up there, that he's impacting their young lives. And you also probably know why this weekend he's shaving those lovely long locks of his for a mighty cause. I mentioned in the introduction that I'll be making a donation, but I also challenge you, if you were moved by today's message, that you could join me in making yours. Where can you learn more about that? Well, there's a long website that I could drive you to. It's called chicagomission.com 
forward slash on and on and on from there. That's where you can learn more about Gino and the hockey clubs up in Chicago. But what I'm going to do is to challenge you to just join me right now on the podcast. Go to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. You'll see a pretty little picture of Gino and John right there. Click that. Go to the bottom. Go to the show notes. And then you'll see a link. You'll see a link to Gino Cavallini, his passion for these kids, his passion for cause, his desire to make a difference. You'll see a little thermometer where they're climbing toward $10,000. And you'll probably also see a donation made by your podcast friend, John O'Leary. Today, I'm making a donation of $1,744. The reason I chose that amount is because in St. Louis, Gina wore number 17. That's where I first fell in love with him, watching number 17, checking folks on the ace. Well, after he left St. Louis, the career continued. He eventually found himself playing for a few years in Milwaukee. And it is in Milwaukee where they ultimately fell so in love with this player that they hung his jersey in the rafters, number 44. So Gino Cavallini and friends of John O'Leary, today I'll be donating 1744 in honor of this massive, legendary human being, Gino Cavallini. And I challenge you, I invite you, I encourage you to contribute some amount that, that you find meaning in. 1744 is where I find it. Where can you do that? I'm glad you asked. Cruise over right now. Join me online, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Look on for the picture of Gino and John hugging. You'll see us up there. Click that. Go to the bottom show notes and then click the link into Chicago Mission. I'm looking forward, my friends, for us blowing through his thermometer, pushing way past $10,000 together with Gino's guidance. You and I can make a difference. So on behalf of Gino Cavallini, and behalf of the children that he's raising money for this weekend, on behalf of all those we've influenced positively in our lives, I remind you that your life matters, that miracles still happen, that the foundation is firm, and that the best is yet to come. So hockey fans and lovers of life, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Choose to live inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com.